and welcome once again to Snow Country Stories Japan. I'm your host, Peter Carnell, a freelance tour guide and writer based in Nagano, Japan. And this is a podcast all about life and travel in Japan's legendary Yukiguni. I started this podcast in March 2023, toward the end of the last snow season. It might seem a strange time to start a podcast about life in the snow country, right? Actually, I don't think so, and there's many reasons I chose to start it then. But needless to say, when talking about the snow country, snow would always be a welcome feature, and with that, happy to say that the first snow of the 2023-2024 season has been falling on the tops of some of the taller mountains on Honshu, that's the main island of Japan, including Mount Fuji. So winter is on its way, the snow will be here soon, and I'm very much looking forward to continuing speaking with you as we are, I hope, about to experience another big winter in Japan. In today's episode, we head north for our first visit to the snow country prefecture of Akita. Located at the very north of Honshu between Aomori and Yamagata prefectures, Akita is Japan's sixth largest prefecture and known for its natural beauty, hot springs, and of course, snow. It's one of those prefectures you don't often hear about, and it's always kind of been that way. Two mountain ranges, the O and Daiwa ranges, long isolated Akita from the commercial and political centers of Japan, a wild place dominated by hunter-gatherers, nomadic tribes, and culturally distinct people. From around the 7th century onward, the region was increasingly brought under the influence and then control of the centralized power of Kyoto and then Tokyo. And today, of course, Akita is as much a part of Japan as any other prefecture, but it remains a somewhat wild and untamed place. It is here in Akita that my guest Eli Suka spends much of his time. Eli is a conservationist, writer, wildlife photographer, and eco tour guide based in Japan, whose current research focuses on bear conservation and specifically bear attacks. His research is the launching point for our wider conversation about wildlife conservation in Japan and the potential of wildlife tourism here. Chances are that when you think of the reasons to visit Japan, wildlife isn't the first thing to spring to mind, but it has huge potential to bring visitors to regional areas, including the snow country. Eli has a lot of experience working in both wildlife conservation and wildlife tourism in Japan. And with that in mind, I asked for his recommendations of the best wildlife experiences that are easy to access in the snow country, something we discuss in the second half of the interview. Make sure to check out the episode page on the Snow Country Stories Japan website for links to each of those and a map displaying where Akita is. Eli's website, The Traveling Conservationist, is simply www.elisuka.com. That's spelled E-L-I-S-O-O-K-E-R.com. And you can follow him on Instagram, Facebook, at Eli Suka. I hope you enjoy. My guest on the podcast today is Eli Suka, a conservationist, writer, wildlife photographer, and eco tour guide based in Japan. I've been aware of Eli for some time, first through his beautiful photography on his social media. Which brought his research and work to my attention. I'm very pleased that Eli could make time to speak with me today. So, Eli, welcome. And first question: How are you? Good, thank you. How are you? Pretty good today. A little bit warm. Where are you? Uh, where are you speaking to me today from? Um, so, I'm currently in Ani region, or which is Kita Akita city in Akita prefecture. Just for listeners, can you help place that on the map? Where is that in relation to Tokyo and other parts of Japan? So you have. Honshu, which is the island on which Tokyo and 
basically the biggest island, and Akita is almost the very north prefecture on the west coast. Yep, so a long way from Tokyo, basically. Yep, you'd have to drive about eight hours on the toll road to get here. It's my understanding, though, Eli, that you're currently studying a master's at Tokyo University of Agriculture. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So I just come up here to do my field research. I'm studying bear attacks in Japan, which have been rising quite a lot in recent years. So by basically I'm interviewing and also doing questionnaire survey and then uh, on-site kind of environmental survey by sort of talking to people that have encountered bears and then comparing that with people that have been attacked and then just seeing, you know, what are the factors that lead from an encounter to an attack. Basically, I'm looking at not just bear behavior, but also human behavior, which hasn't really been looked at much in Japan yet, and also environmental factors, like what kind of trees were in the area, for example. When you talk about bears in Japan, what type of bears uh, are here? So there's two species in Japan. One is Asiatic black bear, which is from uh, Honshu, and well, now it's in Honshu and Shikoku. It used to also be in Kyushu, but now it's extinct there. And in Hokkaido, there's a brown bear, which is basically the same as a grizzly, just a bit different subspecies. They get a bit of a bad name in uh, Japan. Like they're, as we were talking about, they're in the news today. Yeah. Um, the trend here is kind of the media will report attacks, but they don't ever really explain why the attack happened. So it's not very informative for people they just kind of get scared and they don't know actually what they should do if they do meet a bear i'm not a fan of those media reports <laughs> eli where are you originally from and how did you end up in japan so i'm from a little place called hokianga in new zealand um, which is also kind of northwest northwest area and i ended up in japan well i've always liked writing and ecology since i was young so i had kind of two interests, I guess. And I first came to Japan on study abroad, um, being interested in the, well, since I'm interested in the story writing things, I was interested in manga at first. And then I ended up uh, studying abroad at Akita International University, which is where I am now. It's Akita Prefecture. So it's in the northern area. And I was very surprised how it was so different from my image of Japan, which was basically, you know, neon lights in Tokyo or maybe some traditional temples of Kyoto. You know, that's basically, I think, is the main image people have of Japan. But when I came to Akita, I realized most of the country is full of nature and most of it is countryside. Um, and since I've always liked animals and I'm also from the countryside and enjoyed living in the countryside, I kind of got more interested in that part of Japan. During your time here, Eli, you appear to have worked in a number of different roles involved in wildlife tourism and conservation, including your writing and photography. Can you run me through your experiences here? Well, my first wildlife-related job in Japan was at a place called Pikio Wildlife Research Center. They do bear conservation, so they capture bears and then release them back into the mountain. They also do nature tools. So I was basically half my job was doing bear conservation and the other half was being a nature tour guide for foreign tourists. Um, and then after that, I ended up in Shikoku and there they're doing all kinds of animals, basically um, bats, uh, Japanese sero, monkeys. Mostly I went there for the bears and just doing monitoring surveys. After that, I was in Shiratoko in Hokkaido for a bit working on a wildlife cruise ship. 
So, yeah, a little bit here and there, but <laughs> that sums it up, I think. When people think of Japan and reasons to visit, it's likely that wildlife nor wildlife tourism springs to mind. So, Eli, would you agree with that? And what, what interests you about working in this space in Japan? Yeah, I definitely agree with that, um, especially for me because I'm from New Zealand, which is a country which, I mean, our main tourist industry is re- nature-related. So um, everyone's image of New Zealand is clean, green New Zealand. It's like a you know nature tourist destination, which is <laughs> most of it is actually just advertising. I mean, yes, we do have good nature, but you know, there's also environmental problems and things like that. Whereas Japan does not advertise the nature side of it at, at all. I think the most people know is, you know, Mount Fuji. That's quite famous. But other than that, people's image is basically technology like Tokyo um, or maybe, you know, pop culture and then, you know, history. So temples and samurai and that, that kind of thing. is What I find particularly interesting is um, the relationship between rural revitalization and wildlife uh, conservation and tourism. So most places where wildlife conflict is happening now is it, it happens because while people, you know, human population is getting bigger and people are expanding their, you know, places they're living and entering, you know, mountains more. Whereas in Japan, that did happen historically, but now kind of the opposite is happening. Depopulation is happening. So the population is getting lower. And also most of the population is elderly. So kind of a combination of people moving to the city and then the population aging has resulted in there not being a young workforce in most rural areas. How it used to be, there's this area called the Satoyama, which is basically the foothills that surround a rural village. So there'll be the village and then there'll be the Satoyama layer kind of around that. That used to be used for cutting firewood, picking uh, wild vegetables, all kinds of things. Um, And then beyond the Satoyama, that's like the big mountain forest area. So that's people don't really go there much unless they're going hunting. So historically, that Satoyama area acted as a buffer zone for wildlife that would come, that might come into the village. Because people would use it a lot, and so there was better visibility because they cut down trees. Um, And because they were entering that area a lot, animals knew, oh, we're getting closer to human territory here. Better not go any further. But now no one really uses that Satoyama area anymore because either, yeah, there's not many people that are really kind of active to go and use it. And there's also just not many people in general in those rural areas. Because of that, now that Satoyama area has gotten a lot more overgrown. And now animals will just keep thinking it's their territory and they wander straight into the village without, you know, there's no buffer zone to stop them. And that's causing a lot of wildlife conflict. Um, So there's also efforts to try and revitalize these rural areas and, you know, bring back more money to the rural areas Um, and by doing that there'll be more young people and then promoting nature tourism or interacting with nature could also result in using the Satoyama again. Uh, Eli you've already addressed it a little but can you comment on the general state of wildlife protection and conservation in Japan? In general people don't have amazing knowledge of nature but it does change depending on where you are so in the rural area 
people will know, they'll have more knowledge about wildlife, maybe not really ecology type stuff, but they'll know what to do if they meet a bear in the woods, for example, whereas people in the city would have no idea <laughs> most of the time. And, you know, people in the rural areas are suffering from uh, wildlife-related damage. So it is a problem that they face every day. And, I mean, some of the people here I've been interviewing, you know, like a bear would just come outside their house <laughs> uh, several times a month or something. You know, that, that happens as well. So, yeah, I think it's definitely – um, more thought about in rural areas than it is in the cities. Following on from that, Eli, do you feel like wildlife tourism is being optimised here and what potential uh, do you see that it has in Japan? Um, I think that the idea of wildlife tourism is not really in the heads of most um, Japanese people. Um, it's interesting because when I was working at Pikio Wildlife Research Centre, um, I kind of learned about that difference. So my uh, colleagues, they told me this, but basically they, there was some survey about what Westerners versus Asian countries are interested in in terms of nature tourism. And um, most Asian countries, they want to see things like uh, nice scenery, um, like, for example, um, tours of, you know, how, what's it called again? Um, star, it's like starry sky st tours or something, where you look at the you look at the sky with a telescope at nighttime and you talk about the stars and that kind of thing. is a lot more popular with uh, Asian tourists than with Western tourists, for example. Whereas the wildlife tours, in general, Westerners are more interested in that than uh, Asian tourists are. Obviously, this is a generalization, but this is kind of the result that came out from some survey. So I thought that was quite interesting because it explains, I think, why a lot of the time in Japan, I find people who like nature, like, you know, they want to go into nature and talk about plants and they like birds and those kind of things. But when it comes to large animals, they're, they're quite scared and they, they don't really see them as something to watch. You know, it's, it's kind of like a, a scary thing that should be avoided. Um, not everyone, obviously, but <laughs> I think that trend is, yeah, more common here than people who are like, oh, I kind of want to see wild, wild animal, which you get a lot from Western countries. Um, so I think, yeah, that, that's not really, um, wildlife tourism isn't really thought about here as a ways of making money, but I do think there's a lot of potential for it here for sure. Speaking specifically about bears, I mean, I think you mentioned yourself that a lot of people you speak to are surprised to even learn that there are bears in Japan. Uh, media coverage here, my experience, is is usually kind of negative when it comes to bears, that if they are in the media, it's when something negative has happened, such as an attack or they're infringing on um, farmland, things like this. Can you talk a bit about that and how do you find that the issue is typically covered in Japan? Japan's situation is a little bit complicated because – they have had some quite brutal bear attacks historically. So I think it's kind of stemmed from that. There was a, a brown bear. I can't remember when it was now. It was quite a while ago in Hokkaido. And it basically, it learned to kill and eat people. Yeah, there was some pretty bad attacks there. And then there have been other bad attacks. So in Akita, um, four people were killed in one, I think it was in the span of one or two weeks. Um and then they found that 
the bear that they captured had also eaten, you know, also eaten the corpse. So they don't know if it was the same bear that killed all four people or not, but yeah, something kind of unusual happened there. So that that's happened a few times, which has made things worse, I think. But yes, in general, the way people, uh, the media portrays bear attacks is they will talk about bears as being um, scary, dangerous, wild creatures that, you know, kind of attack um, without any motivation sort of a thing. There's no explanation of why bears attack in these pieces. It's just there was a bear attack. And you mentioned there's two types of bears in Japan. One is the black bear, the Asiatic black bear, uh, which is found on Honshu, is that correct? And then the brown bear, which is only found on Hokkaido. Is is that right? Uh, so Asian black bear is found in Honshu and Shikoku. Yeah, uh, it's, it's endangered in Shikoku, though. There's only 20 left there. So Shikoku being the, the small island, well, relatively small island below Honshu. And Hokkaido uh, has black bears and also brown bears or just the brown bears? Hokkaido is just brown bears. And those brown bears are similar to grizzlies, you said? Well, grizzlies are actually brown bears. People often get this mixed up. Um, but a grizzly is just like the name that North Americans use for a subspecies of the brown bear, which lives, which lives in North America. But basically, they're all brown bears. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, let me, let me throw a really general question at you as someone who researches them. Between those two species of bear, can you quickly go into uh, what, are the, what is their behavior like and what is the major difference between the two types of bear? Yeah. Uh, so Asian black bears are quite small. So... Um, you know, they weigh between basically 40 and 80. Well, males can go a little bit higher, but usually uh, 80 is, uh, I don't even think, I think average for males, yeah, 70, 80 kilograms. So they're quite small. They're about one to one, yeah, one to 1.5 meters at the biggest. Uh, brown bears obviously are a lot bigger, so they can get up to, you know, 200, 300 kilos sometimes. Most people have the image of, um, bears eating meat, but actually they hardly ever meet, eat meat. Uh, most of their diet is plants, so they'll eat berries, nuts, and uh, the in case in the case of the brown bear um, in Hokkaido, they hunt salmon, but it's only during uh, autumn, so it's quite a short period. And they they do occasionally hunt deer, but it's quite uncommon to see that. And Asian black bears, it's even more uncommon for them to hunt. Uh, they will occasionally eat like a dead corpse or something if they see like an animal corpse, but hunting is very rare. So, you know, we kind of have the image of bears as being carnivores, but they're actually omnivores and mostly plant material. So um, there's no reason that they would attack a human and try and eat a human. <laughs> That's just not really a thing. Um, obviously, on very rare occasions, they might attack a human is self-defense and then they might see the dead corpse because they eat corpses and then they might try it and then that's how some bears have learned to hunt humans but it's yeah hardly ever happens it's very rare (laughs) 
So I'm happy to say that Japan is starting to promote its national parks to international visitors.、Uh, again, many listeners might be surprised to hear that Japan is home to many, many fantastic national parks, which, thanks to Japan's size as a relatively compact country and fantastic、uh, infrastructure in terms of transport, many of them are very easy to get to.、Uh, so I expect, as a result of that promotion of the national parks, we're going to see more promotion of wildlife experiences. In the coming years. And before speaking with you today, I asked if you could nominate some recommended wildlife experiences、uh, for visitors to Japan. So, if you don't mind, let's jump into those. What can you recommend that people do when they're here? So, well, first,、um, the place I used to work at,、uh, Pikio. So, this is Pikio. And so, just to, for listeners, they're located in Karawazawa in Nagano. So, quite easy to get to by Shinkansen from Tokyo. Yeah, they recently started a bear, black bear observation tour. In spring, when there's no leaves, they observe with like they use binoculars and search for bears from the top of a kind of a cliff, a mountain cliff, and you can kind of see into the forest because there's no leaves. They're also doing a monitoring tour, which is kind of introduces you to Pikio's conservation, bear conservation activities, which is really interesting because they're the first place in Asia to use bear dogs. So they use these Karelian, they're called Karelian bear dogs. Sounds very, sounds very Star Wars, Carillion bear dogs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so they're actually a Finnish breed originally. Very good because they don't attack bears、um, and they're good at keeping their distance from bears, but they're also persistent enough that they will you know, keep chasing the bear and, and bark at it. Basically, they chase it away from the human areas. They will kind of introduce you to the bear dogs and then they will show you the, the catch trap that they use to catch Asian black bears. In Karizawa, bears. Um, came into the town area a lot, especially because Karizawa has a lot of、uh, holiday homes which are in the forest area. So, Pikio is, is a company, but they also have an MPO, half of it is an MPO. And they developed in order to stop、uh, the damage of bears, since it's very popular with tourists and the image of Karizawa as a place that is coexisting with nature is、um, being promoted by the Karizawa town. The town office、um, started to employ them to catch these bears and re- release them without killing them. They have a bunch of different tours. So they have basic, basically like a walking nature tour, which is just observing birds, plants, insects all year round. They have this musasabi, sorry, it's called musasabi in Japanese. In English, it's the giant flying squirrel tour. And basically, you learn about this. Flying squirrels' ecology and how to observe it without bothering the animal.、Uh, it's nocturnal, so it's at night that you go out. You go out at night and then look at it as it's waking up. Occasionally it sticks its head out of the nest and then、um, you can watch it fly. So that's Pikio in Karawazawa. I'll make sure to include a link to their website on the episode page on the website for today's episode. What's next, Eli? What can you recommend? Another one that's good is、uh, most people may have heard of them already, but、um, the snow monkeys. In Jigokudani. It's called Jigokudani Monkey Park,、um, which is in Nagano as well. The story there is、um, there was a hiker who, who saw these monkeys and he was really interested in them. And then、um, the ski resort started to develop.、Um, and he, he noticed that the monkeys were kind of decreasing and forced to move to the lower regions, like the Yamanoshi settlement.、Um, and then Because they were in those lower regions and possibly less food as well,、uh, 
they started to go into the town and eating uh, agricultural crops and started to become a big damage problem. So as you can imagine, the farmers weren't very happy with that. So I think as a way to, to uh, basically to prevent that, they opened the monkey park and started feeding them there and brought them a bit away from the town again. Um, but yeah, that story is actually not really known by a lot of the visitors. I think they do have, um, Peter might know more about this than me, but they have like information panels inside the visitor center, but I don't think, it was there an English one there? Yeah, they do. They've got some very good information in English, but it focuses on the biology, behavior, the habitat of the monkeys. It doesn't tell you why they're there. And the story of the monkeys really, again, is a story of environmental degradation. As you said, Eli, it's related to the ski resort above the monkey park, which is Japan's largest ski resort, Shigakogen. That was largely developed through the 50s and 60s. And so as they were cutting the forest to create the ski runs, the troops of monkeys moved out of the mountains. They felt under threat down to the... Um, Yamanochi area where they found all these apple orchards and grape vineyards and very happy with that outcome and as you mentioned a man by the name of Sogohara a man who used to uh, hike through that area then led the movement to create the park for them to take them up there and they've been there ever since yeah it's actually interesting um, when I was working for Picchio we were actually commi- commissioned by I can't remember if it was the prefectural government or city government but um, basically, we, we were commissioned to go and uh, do a questionnaire survey in the monkey park. <laughs> um, and so we were interviewing foreign tourists there and asking them, you know, what they thought about nature tourism in Japan and the monkey park. And everyone there was like really disappointed that the monkeys were being fed. And they they thought mm. that it was like really wild monkeys. Mm. And they're really disappointed by how touristy it was. So I think that whole conservation story does really need to be promoted more. I think so. Yeah, because that's very important to say. I mean, the monkeys are wild in the sense there's nothing keeping them in the park. They come and go as they please and they do leave the park every night. Um, and there are days in the year which they may not come or they, they come in small numbers. But you're totally correct to point that out, that they are fed to keep them interested in the park and at certain times of, of the year, it's over-touristed, especially in winter. I find that the experience can really be affected by the number of people. The monkeys are there all year, but most people want to see them, obviously. The name Snow Monkeys implies you want to see them in the winter. Uh, it's extremely busy in the winter. I can honestly say, as I said, I've guided there many times, it's a better experience outside of winter, uh, especially in the spring and summer. Spring is a wonderful time of year to go because the monkeys around late April to May to early June, have their babies. And one of the things, it's quite a unique experience, and the mothers are relatively relaxed, and they will let you get quite close to the babies. Obviously, there are staff on hand to monitor what you do, and you can't touch them or get too close, but there's no barriers between you and them. So it's a really unique opportunity to get to that proximity to what are fundamentally wild animals. They're, you know, they're habituated to humans to a certain degree, uh, but I totally agree with you. It's over-touristed at times of the year, and I find it's a better experience here in the green season. So what I'll do again, I'll include a link to uh, the Monkey Park uh, in the episode page for today. And uh, Eli, let's jump on to the next recommendation you have for wildlife experience in Japan. The next one I'd like to talk about is uh, Shiretoko Wildlife Cruises uh, in Hokkaido. So that's the northern island of Japan. Basically, Shiretoko is a UNESCO World Heritage Site um for its nature um and 
about half of the park, I think it is, is maybe even more, is basically you're not actually allowed to enter there. So that area is dedicated to wildlife. Um, only people that can enter are researchers that have got permission and um, a select group of fishermen that have uh, fished there historically. Uh, the population density of brown bears there is one of the highest in the world. Your chance of encountering a brown bear there is very high. Basically, it would be something like Alaska when bears gather at, at the river areas. But, you know, Alaska is very large, so most of the year, Shiratoko should have a higher density than Alaska. Uh, they have these cruise boats which go along the coast so that you can actually view this area which people are not allowed to enter. You can take cruises from two sides of the it's a peninsula, actually, uh, Shiratoko Peninsula. Yeah, just to place it for listeners, if you look at the map of Japan, as as you mentioned, Hokkaido is the very large island at the north. And if you look to the northeast, there's almost like a needle-like peninsula that sticks out into the sea. And that whole peninsula is the park. Is that correct? Yeah. So basically on the um, on the west western side of the peninsula, there's a little village called Utoro. And on the... Eastern side, it's Raosu. So there's these two little villages, and you can take a cruise from either side. Uh, Utoro side is known for more for scenery. Um, so you can see like waterfalls, very cool looking rock formations. There's also, you see uh, dolphins quite a lot and brown bears, obviously. So for the Utoro side, I would recommend a company called Fox, F O X, which actually you worked for. for Four months. May I jump in, uh, Eli? Uh, what time yeah. of year are the cruises operating? Are they all year round? Um, except for winter. So, yeah, spring till around mid-autumn. Um, there are actually some cruises which are in, in winter as well, just to be uh, specific. But mm. that particular company uh, is from spring. So I think it's about May, uh, May till early November. There are a few different companies uh, so there's companies that specialize in winter tours as well. And in winter, it's actually a destination for drift ice. So it's like a special boat which kind of cuts through the ice. And you can see quite different wildlife from what you can see in summertime there. There's these giant eagles. What's the name of them again? I forgot the name in English. Uh, <laughs> a Hotsk eagle, uh, which come from Russia um, during the winter. So you can see them... Um, Anyway, that'll, that conversation could go for a while. So I'll, I'll jump back to the other tours on the uh, Rausu side. So on the Rausu side, um, that's known for whales. So they have humpback whales and orcas. And you can also see brown bears. They have a, one company is doing closer, a bit closer up brown bear tours in a smaller boat if you – you know, if the distance on Utero side is a little bit far for some people that are, you know, wanting to take photos of bears, for example, then you would better take um, this cruise. Can you comment, uh, Eli, in terms of the brown bears, is there a best time of year to, to visit, to see them when they're most active? Yes, there is. Um, so for seeing them from a boat, you'll want to go in – Summer, yeah, mid. I'd say mid-August through to early September would be best time. They come down to eat the salmon, which mm. comes uh, early September, but the salmon will go up the river. So first they're kind of in the sea area. So in that 
time period, bears start coming down from the mountains to the ocean side. And then, you know, as salmon gradually go up the river, they start to go more inland. And then by November, they're kind of eating acorns in the mountains again. So Hokkaido is where the famous red cranes, the dancing cranes, are also uh, found. Uh, have you had the chance to see them and do you recommend the experience? Um, so I've, I've seen the um, red crown cranes uh, about five years ago in, in summer, which is not really the most popular time to see them. So I'm not super um, not knowledgeable about, you know, where to see them and, and all that kind of thing. But I, I do know a few spots which are well known and I can kind of talk about their story. So basically they have quite a um, cool conservation story because they were thought to be extinct um, due to hunting and agricultural development. Um, and then in 1924, um, somebody found – you know, a, a surviving population of about 20, about 20 left uh, in Kushiro, which is also where they are now. And basically that population, they decided to, you know, start feeding stations and things to help them recover. And now there are about 2,000 in the world and 1,000 of those are in Hokkaido. The best time to see them would be winter because they have this courtship dance, which is apparently very beautiful to watch. There's a few places, yeah. So Akan International Crane Center, there's Tancho Observation Center. I think the one I went to, if I remember right now, was Tancho Observation Center. So that one, they, they did kind of have a few of the cranes were in enclosures, which I wasn't really a fan of. So mm, personally, yeah. I would recommend you go to a place where they're kind of, you know, loose <laughs> um so to speak <laughs> yeah so to speak um they do still feed them um at least during winter i'm not sure i don't think they do during summer but yeah in winter they feed them still so it's, um, it's interesting because i was under the impression they're only there in winter but much like the monkeys they're there all year round so what happens is in other countries they do migrate um, but Japan and Hokkaido, they are there all year round. Uh, Eli, thank you so much for that. Um, what's next for you after you finish your study? What's What have you got planned for the, the years to come? I've been wanting to write a book about my experiences here, trying to find wildlife, for example, when I do my wildlife photography or kind of camping and hiking out in Japanese mountains, kind of experiences doing my field research. I don't know if travelogue is the right word for that, but yeah, kind of a a travel story rather than a guidebook as such. And then eventually I want to set up an NPO um, similar to Pikio but in Akita area. And I think as part of part of that, I'm also wanting to do some um, bear observation tours. So depending on when you listen to this podcast, um, I might have already <laughs> possibly, you never know, set it up. So um, if anyone's interested in that, yeah, um, please check out my website and yeah. see if there's any updated information on there. So on that note, uh, what's the best way for people to follow you or get in touch should they be interested? Um, so I'm mostly active on Instagram and Facebook at the moment. Um, and I have a website as well, which will have more detailed information. So if you follow those uh, social media accounts and just check out the website, 
that should have all the information there. And I'll make sure to put a link to both your Insta and your website and Facebook on uh, the show notes for today's episode, also on the episode page on the website. I encourage you to have a look at Eli's uh, Insta and and that's how I found him. Uh, As I mentioned, firstly, through your beautiful photography. I mean that quite honestly. And then came to discover the research you're doing. And uh, again, Eli, I want to say a big thank you for making time to speak to, speak to me today. I know you're in the middle of your research in Akita. I really appreciate the chance of having spoken and maybe we can touch base again once the uh, bear tours are up and running. Thank you. Cheers, mate. All the best. That's it for today's episode. Thank you to Eli for speaking with me. Once again, his website, The Travelling Conservationist, is simply www.elisuka.com. That's spelled E-L-I-S-O-O-K-E-R. And you can follow him on Instagram and Facebook by searching Eli Suka. Today's episode page on the Snow Country Stories Japan website has more information, photos, maps, Eli's recommended wildlife experiences, and links to his website and social media. If you happen to be interested in visiting the Monkey Park, make sure to listen to the next episode of the podcast, My Travel Guide to the Snow Monkeys. All the ins and outs of making it worthwhile, including, should you be interested, the tours that I guide there. The Snow Country Stories Japan website is snowcountrystories.com and you can follow the show on Instagram, Facebook and X by searching Snow Country Stories Japan. My name is Peter Carnell. This has been Snow Country Stories Japan. I'll be back in a couple of weeks from now with that episode. Until then, it's bye for now. <laughs>